So we acknowledge that the lands on which Deakin campuses reside were places of age-old ceremonies of celebration, initiation and renewal, and that the local Aboriginal peoples have had and continue to have a unique role in the life of these lands. In particular, we acknowledge the Pigwarong people of the Ma Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we are gathered today in Warrnambool. I'm Tordy Rowe, the Indescience Program Coordinator within the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Division at Deakin University. And for today's episode, I will be interviewing Zoe Britton and Brooke Jensen from the Indescience Program. So let's get started. Brooke, I'm going to throw over to you first. Can you briefly introduce yourself and I say briefly, but your, your academic journey, um, highlighting your STEM specialisation and any significant achievements or projects during your time here? Yeah, of course. Hi, I'm Brooke. I am sort of a newie here at Deakin and in Warrnambool. Um, I've only been in Warrnambool for about three and a half years. So I spent a lot of my time in Brisbane. But basically, I am an undergraduate of science, but now I'm transitioning into teaching. So I've taken a lot of what I've learned and known in clinical biomedical science and environmental science, and I now do a lot of my science through communication and outreach. So I have a graduate certificate in STEM education through Deakin here, which has really helped in transitioning into teaching because it's no longer just a really straight science education it's a really well-rounded transdisciplinary approach towards STEM education. If I'm gonna specifically highlight any elements of my STEM career, I've been on the radio with Dr. Carl and I've been on the radio here with um, the Southwest ABC, promoting one of the programs around the Science and Engineering Challenge through the University of Newcastle. But we, I work with a lot of schools in the region, just like Deakin and the Mod Squad do here, at Deakin, but we bring schools on site and we get them to participate in science and STEM activities to promote a science career path down the track. So yeah. Which sounds all very exciting. What did you talk to Dr. Carl about? So it was a part of the World Festival, uh, the World Science Festival in Brisbane. Dr. Carl was just on before me, um, but we were having a bit of a chat in the transition before the morning presenter for the weekend was talking to me about um, use transitioning into science and STEM. So Dr. Carl and I just had a quick chat about science at the moment. Uh, this was quite a few years ago now, but like at the time I was running a little workshop with a giant pool of non-Newtonian fluid, which is the cornflower water in oh, a like. little, yeah, in, in a giant kid's shell. So I had kids of all ages, um, including adults coming in to like jump and put their hands into the, the giant pool of oobleck and hopefully wash their hands afterwards before <laughs> running off. But yeah, no, it was a really fantastic weekend. What a great way to show kids what STEM looks like, isn't it? Oh yeah. Fantastic. And Zoe, would you like to introduce your journey? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I've now, I realised the other day, been at Deakin for 10 years, which is kind of scary because I originally... I uh, didn't even plan to finish high school. I kind of got strong-armed by one of my teachers to stick it out and only went to uni so I could get out of my hometown nice and easy. Um, and when I was there, I enrolled in a Bachelor of uh, Zoology because uh, I grew up just a lot of ways that people don't think of science, but just running around the backyard, getting dirty, collecting bugs and that sort of thing. But believe it or not, it's a pretty scientific way to look at the world. So... 
I also fell in love with, in my undergrad, uh, anthropology. So I ended up with two bachelor's degrees, one in zoology and one in anthropology. I had to do an elective and didn't really feel like doing another chemistry. Uh, I apologise to the (laughs) chemistry stands out there. But I saw that the Warrnambool campus, because I was based in Geelong at the time, had a marine botany uh, course. And I had literally never thought of marine botany or seaweeds or anything before in my life. So I thought that sounded fun. And that was in 2015. And so I've been here ever since. Ended up doing my honours in the Deakin Seaweed Lab. And now I'm a year out from finishing my PhD. My area of research is uh, a bit of a critical humanities look at the developing seaweed industry in the Australasian region. So mainly New Zealand and Australia. And I pretty much just get to talk to people about what they think and how they relate to seaweed so it's lots of fun that sounds like the best way to learn about science though collecting bugs so I imagine that sparked your interest that you did like science without realizing you were liking science yeah definitely I think I think um that's something that a lot of people can relate to. We even see that a lot in my research. Um, with I do a lot of interviews and a lot of uh, getting to meet and have a yarn with different types of people who part of my work is um, working with a few of our Aboriginal collaborators around cultural knowledge of seaweed. And, you know, I'll often meet with someone who'll say, oh, I don't think I know too much about seaweed. And then we'll end up having a six hour long conversation. (laughs) Um, So I think that, you know, a lot of people don't really uh, acknowledge how much they do know and the connection they have to the world around them. So I think I was in the same boat growing up. Yeah, we're just exploring without realising actually all the different things you were exploring. Yeah, at the same time. (laughs) And Brooke, would you say for yourself, for sparking your interest in your STEM journey? Yeah, so when I was in year nine, which is a little while ago now, um, I was in a Brisbane school. We were a low socioeconomic school. We didn't have a lot of resources at all. And our teacher came in and pushed us towards this thing called the Science Experience, which has had various different names over the years with different sponsors. But it took it takes year nines and it brings them onto a university campus all across the country and pushes them into uh, lectures and workshops of all different fields just to give them an idea of what science looks like at university and in the real world. And that's pretty much what sparked my interest. And I even remember pinning a few um, beautiful butterflies <laughs> and things um, like that. We had a beautiful cadaver lab tour and things like that. It was just things that I had not seen before, things that you don't see in a classroom, in a school, and that's what sparked my interest. I'm like, this is cool, this is what I want to do. I don't know what specifically yet, but th- I know I want to go into something sciencey. Yeah, you want to experiment with what you've just seen and sort of that's you know, the basis of science, isn't it? Those sort of Absolutely. experimentation and learning. Fantastic. Funnily enough, I know about the science experience as well and did the same in year 10. Just for, you know, crazy connections there. So building on that, you talked about being from a low socioeconomic school background. InterScience works with students from low socioeconomic schools. What, I'll start with you, Brooke, but what, why did you apply to be an InterScience mentor? And sort of with that, what do you find most rewarding about being a mentor in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, there was many different aspects. When Tori and Nikki here at Uh, the Warrnambool campus had approached me. Um, They're like, oh, there's this new science thing starting at Deakin. 
And I said, oh, well, I've been involved in science outreach programs for years. Shove me in there. I'll, I'll do anything. Um, I love sparking interest in science. I then found out what the program was about and it, simply just giving a little bit of your time once a week to go and interact with school students about cool stuff in science or things that they're doing in the classroom. My students at the moment are making a little solar oven and we were just talking about what sort of colours are going to be a better use for their oven, blacks or whites, silvers, etc, etc. And it's just those little conversations that you have with students that even if they don't end up in an amazing STEM career, they're having fun, they're interacting and little do they know they're participating in science and STEM in everyday life. Without realising and you're yeah. there to sort of show them the different ways. What colours did they decide in the end? Did they figure it out with their solar ovens or they're still in the process? They're still in the process. It was sort of their very first lesson into it and their teacher was away, which didn't help. Um, <laughs> but we, I, I just went and got some like alfoil. Um, we had some black and white tiles and some old school CDs. There was a Powderfinger CD in there, I felt proud. <laughs> <laughs> and we got the thermal gun. We just went outside in the sunshine and we were just testing what temperatures um, both on top and underneath the surface would be just to give them a bit of like idea and inspiration towards things that they could use at the start of next term. Fantastic I love the way you sort of delved into that side of it and Zoe for yourself what made what interested you in the inter-science program? Um, well yeah much like Brooke I came from a really low socioeconomic school that had didn't have very many resources at all and I a little bit different school did not inspire me at all even though we had a few cool things I hated high school had really bad attendance and just did not enjoy the experience found it really boring and um, understimulating a lot of the time and the opposite sort of happened when I got to uni absolutely love uni and I think that's what really drew me towards this program as well is I also didn't know what uni was. I actually didn't know what a PhD was until my supervisor told me I should do one. (laughs) Like, I didn't know. And I think I might have been a little bit more inspired in high school if I had an understanding of, like, what science can lead to or what university looks like or what role it can even have in, you know, non-university jobs. And so I was just really interested in getting to, you know, meet young people and show them that, like, you know, you don't have to be you know, a suit-wearing, straight-laced <laughs> scientist and that there are so many different options of, of where that can bring you. Um, also for me as well, being neurodivergent as well, I know a lot of kids don't have good role models or, you know, not, not much visibility with role models of, like, what they can do when they get older, especially having ADHD. A lot of kids, you know, thinking of becoming a researcher seems like a bit, you know, outside of the scope of things they can achieve. And I think that's been really rewarding is getting to, like, interact and meet kids who, you know, also are neurodivergent and being able to, you know, connect on that that level and be like, no, you can sort of do whatever you put your mind to with the right supports. It's a huge context to give them and to be, as you said, that role model that you wish you'd had. Mm. You get to be that for students and in a regional area on top of that. So working with so low socioeconomic schools in a regional area, you're showing them what they can do. Because I loved in your presentation to the class, you're showing them the countries you visited just by going to uni. Yeah. And the, and the way that they looked at that and the look on their face, like, oh, I could do that was just a beautiful moment. And I, I loved that I actually got to see it. For the, I don't often get to see those moments. Yeah. So it's wonderful to see you showing them and then taking it on and going, 
this could be me. Yeah, and I asked the students because it was, uh, for me as well, growing up, like, I didn't even really know anyone who had been overseas, like, other than people who had, like, migrated to Australia. So overseas travel at the time, you know, wasn't wildly done in the sort of community I grew up with. We did have, like, one trip with school to Malaysia and that that was about it. So a lot of the kids, you know, didn't even really know anyone maybe than one older sibling who had travelled overseas. So being like, hey, if you go to uni, it's kind of a way to get a bit of a free holiday and learn some stuff. I think that's, like, really appealing in a lot of things that um, young people aren't aware that are out there. Definitely, and it's not a waste. It's never a waste. You know, if they then do something after uni, they haven't wasted that time. Mm-hmm. It's getting them to see that. Thank you for sharing that. And as you said, that neurodivergent aspect as well, for them to see role models, it's it's not just being a woman in a STEM field that you're showing them what you can do. It's showing them with your background and sharing that with them, which is awesome. So thank you for that. Now, many women still face challenges and biases in STEM fields, which I'm sure you are both aware of. Um, and I'll throw this open to both of you, so feel free to jump in. For Could you share any personal experiences or strategies you've employed to overcome any of these challenges during your STEM journeys? I'm happy to go first if that's right. Yeah, sure. Well, um, for me, it's been super important and something advice I give to younger academics coming through their undergrad is that it's really important to have strong um, female mentors in your network going forward. So always having at least, you know, one female supervisor, having... um, female academics, whether they're currently a lecturer of yours or a previous lecturer, keeping in contact so you always have someone to speak to when these issues arise because, unfortunately, I think across, you know, most male-dominated sectors, these issues inevitably will arise to one extent or another. And so I think having those, you know, older female mentors who can help guide you through that can be, yeah, really super important. Even if it doesn't mean taking action, just having someone to, you know, complain with who gets it can often be really, really helpful. And also I feel like sometimes just sharing it, you realise, well, actually, maybe it wasn't what I thought happened or maybe it was more than I thought happened and you're just given, you're giving yourself that safe space to... Yeah, and I'm really share. lucky in seaweed. Seaweed's so strange because as a research area because it is STEM, but it now and even historically has been um, dominated by women so even when you don't see many women in the universities full stop like sometimes abroad or sometimes going back historically still some of the most you know famous and forward-looking academics were women at the time so we're really I guess spoilt in a way to have all these like great role models and great mentors but then you're passing that on yourself you know, by sharing that, as you said, with the undergrads and sharing that, that that's your experience, that this is what they could do to make it better for their experience. And then I believe you've been doing that mentoring yourself, though, then for those undergrads, being that person to say, hey, come talk to me. And Brooke? I just have to say ditto. Um, <laughs> I haven't had too much of a struggle. Um, I'm very privileged in that way, um, especially as a white female in STEM, like I haven't had the biggest problem, but I acknowledge that there are a lot of problems still. The biggest power that I've been given, which definitely relates to what you've said, is working with strong female in the field. So as a, even as a laboratory technician, I knew I was gonna be a teacher one day. I would purposely sit in and around the teachers that I knew were fantastic, the female teachers that were fantastic, 
at Intrapilly High School when I worked there, there was this fantastic physics teacher and she would just, she wasn't that strong presence. She was a shorter female, but she just engaged the room in an amazing way and I loved her for it. And I loved being in and around her presence socially um, through the school, but just watching her with her students was fantastic. And that gave me inspiration towards my own learning and teaching elements. So mm. yeah. absolutely. What a great way to see yeah. those mentors in action. And I think um, Brooke raised a really important point as well, like we're both white women as well. So the challenges and biases we face, you know, aren't often particularly very hard compared to what other people can face. And it's always been really important for me to reflect on the fact that um, of this idea that like no one is free from challenges until we're all free from challenges and being able to actually step up and use, you know, some of the privilege and power you do have from your whiteness to help support other colleagues who face, you know, intersecting levels of challenges can also be a really great, I guess we, in the question it says strategy, but to help, um, you know, push the atmosphere of the workplace and the field forward to be more inclusive for everyone is an amazing point to make because we do come from that aspect of privilege and so being able to recognise it, acknowledge it and then use it to actually provide more support and to see that everybody's experiences are not the same and to recognise that and what you can put into place to support them. It's a big deal but I love the community aspect of it, you know, thinking about others. It's not just, oh, I'm a woman in STEM, I've been through challenges. Well, actually, everybody's facing challenges of different levels. I think one of the amazing things I love with my position at the moment, um, working in schools with different roles, my favourite program, the National Youth Science Forum, I always try and find um, students from the schools that we're working with, from that lower socioeconomic background, and try and getting funding for them to go to these programs. And last year I found funding, full scholarship uh, for this beautiful, year tw- well she's year 12 now, female and she's uh, Indonesian born, English isn't her first language and I got the full $2,000 scholarship for her from our Rotary Club to attend this program. She's now applying for universities, she's she's currently applying for a $5,000 scholarship for one of the universities, like she's just going from strength to strength and it's not just me who's acknowledged that but it's the whole school and her teaching staff that's really seen such an improvement in her confidence and just jumping for the next goal. Because somebody believed in her and provided that opportunity. What a wonderful role you can play in all these different areas. So then what advice, what advice would you give to other women interested in pursuing STEM studies at Deakin or or other institutions? Doesn't necessarily mean university either. STEM doesn't mean university. Very clear on that. It's a field. It's not a university sole one. Are there specific resources or support networks? I mean, I know you mentioned, Zoe, about you know, having those role models and having somebody as a mentor that you can refer to, but are there any other sort of advice or resources you would love to share? I think for me it's been important and, you know, when you're trying to mentor onwards, I guess, like you described before, is that to just acknowledge so it sort of doesn't catch you off guard that although there is a lot of push to get women into STEM and a lot of support to get them in, there is a high likelihood that you're probably going to face some level of, you know, challenges or bias against women once you are in the, the whether it be the course or the job or the role. 
and that that is not acceptable, but to acknowledge that those challenges and biases may still be present and that you have sort of pre-thought about it. So you may have people to speak to about it or, or debrief about it. And also that they're often, if it is in a university, there may be diversity and inclusion teams or depending on, on what it is, the disability inclusion team and things like that, that you can reach out to for support. But I think... Yeah, often when we're really pushing young women into these male-dominated spaces, there can be this idea that once you've there, you've made it yeah. and the challenges are over and just acknowledging that, like, there's potentially going to be a bit of work in there, um, but it can be worth it in the end and it's nothing against you as a person if you do still come up against those challenges and biases. Yeah. Going in with your eyes open about it, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a good challenge. Yes. You can have so much more impact mm-hmm. if you know what you're getting into and what you can still achieve. Yeah, and just, you know, if you are the victim of some sexist bias or, or sexism in general, that that's not on you as an individual and that's an issue with the structure and that there are people who will be able to support you through that if you look out for those mentors and role models. Definitely having that space. Brooke? Um, again, ditto. Um, <laughs> but from my experience, I've always felt like I've been trying to put myself on the pedestal ever since I started university. Um, I came from, again, a low socioeconomic background. I was the first person in my family to come to university. I didn't really understand it all. Coming into this giant complex, and even though in Brisbane I didn't go, I went to a university that was sort of medium-sized. I didn't go to the really big fancy one. I'm not name-dropping here. (laughs) But it, it was a different experience altogether, and it wasn't necessarily close to home. It was an hour and a half by bus. Um, just one way so everyone's pathway is different and that's something I had to learn myself I was trying to set myself the example of all these fantastic lecturers and academics I was seeing and they're fantastic but what they don't really show you and what you really need to go and talk to some actual university students is everyone has a different pathway and although that is promoted it doesn't really hit home until you're actually on that pathway Um, And especially as a female, you feel sometimes that you've got a pressure to maybe try and get towards that marriage or family element. And I've definitely had that. I'm the only child in my family. So my parents, although they're not egging me on for grandkids, they're just like, at some point, we'd love to see one. And I'm just like, oh, well, I'd really love to study a bit more. And I know I can study. I know I can do whatever I want. We're in a fantastic 21st century where we have that opportunity to do a lot of more things than what we would have had decades ago. But I still feel that pressure all the time. And it's something that I'm not going to just get over really quickly. And it's something, as I said, the pathway is different. And um, having those strong female mentors around you, like Tori and um, Nikki and everyone here at Deakin, it's really fantastic to see that beautiful balance between your life academically and non-academically. So it's it was a big learning curve for me and I'm sure it'll be for others as well. Yeah, and I think the real eye-opening thing for me on that, like learning that parts aren't all the same, I remember I had one lecturer who um, on school holidays would bring her primary school age kids with her into the lecture hall and sit them in the front row and they'd just do colouring in. And for me, I was like, oh, wow, people can have kids and have a job. Like, it was just so alien to me. And I'm really lucky in my lab often, like, if, you know, it's school holidays or the kids are finishing school, they'll just, like, turn up while we're still having a meeting and just, you know, 
play video games or read a book in the corner or whatever and that's like super normalized and I'm not sure if you relate to this Brooke as well but one thing I think often women getting into industries where we've been traditionally excluded there can be this sort of like push to almost I kind of have to act more masculine or have to be tougher or have to sort of like mimic how it currently is even if the traits are sometimes toxic or not good and I would really push back against that because what I prior to um, studying my PhD here I actually worked for six years um, in industry I worked for Zoos Victoria in um, visitor engagement so that was helping to communicate their conservation campaigns how to help people be uh, live more wildlife friendly lives and if I had sort of um, tampered down that aspect of myself being a girl in high school often a lot of girls might hear oh you talk too much all you do is talk all you do is chat 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 well chatting too much actually got me a job for six years you know and so if I had tried to change myself to maybe be more of a stoic serious scientist I would actually be holding myself back from the opportunities and I know Brooke you did a lot of science communication as well and communication is often typically seen as like a girly or a womanly thing but we're seeing now that it's so integral and that is the way a lot of these industries are going so I'd really just say like just be yourself and work work to your strengths don't feel like you have to you know cut and mold yourself to fit into what is already expected you don't have to fit into a box yeah you know you're a person you have all these aspects to yourself that's a really important point to to make and to share because often women going into a stem field will be pushed to specific areas that are considered to be more female friendly so and there is nothing against those areas but then you have the converse of so you get pushed into nursing which is very very female heavy you don't have males in nursing and the males aren't feeling that they're comfortable to go into that field. So you get both sides of it. And so being able to recognise you are a person, you're important, what you want to do is, is good. Yeah. It's a good thing to want to do that. And it can even be as simple as dress. I remember my first year of my science story, my friend who was studying biomedical sciences got told by a PhD student in biomed, took one look at us and said, oh, you girls don't look like you're dressed to do a science degree. Wow. We weren't dressed like... You were dressed. We were just wearing skirts, I'm pretty sure. Like, it was nothing exciting. And that actually comment, actually, luckily because we had each other to debrief, we actually just doubled down. And every time we had to interact with this person, just started dressing up more and more. Yeah. And it's, it comes down to that sort of thing as well, where it's like, just do you. Like, if someone's going to be mean to you or complain about you, they'll find a reason to do it. So don't you know, have to tamper yourself down as long as you feel like, you know, safe in that environment. Like, just be be yourself. Yeah, be confident. Yeah. But it's not always easy to be confident. Yeah. But know that if you've gone on that pathway, you, you've made that choice. Be confident in your choices. And also that pathways can change. You said everybody has a different pathway into what they end up doing. It's okay to change your pathways. It's okay to get into something thinking you're going to love it and finding out you don't. That's also okay. Don't have to... F- you get the pressures from family, you get all kinds of pressures on your lives. I know a number of our international students particularly get pressures into specific fields because that's what their families would like. As you said, do you? Be confident in that. So giving all sort of that advice, talking about yourselves and this, what are your current career aspirations? So PhD student, Zoe, you said it's finishing up next year, which is huge and exciting. What do you think you're going to do next with this with this PhD in, in Amazing Seaweed? 
Yeah, I always found this question kind of funny because um, I'm not really a planner. I kind of just do what I like. So (laughs) and I don't know if that's good advice for everyone to follow, but I found that like not having like a super solid plan and being that bit more flexible allows you to sort of just feel things out. What's around at the time, you can sort of see where your skills fit and and what um, you like and you sort of take that pressure off yourself. In saying that though, we are hoping to secure some funding to, for a postdoctoral position. So when you finish your PhD, you have a doctorate. And so a postdoctorate position is like your first grown-up job outside of finishing your um, PhD, where instead of being a student with a supervisor, you're, you can you know start to sort of have control of a research project a little bit more on your own. And so we're hoping that I'll just pretty much continue what I'm doing now, but Fantastic. I'll just get a nice little pay bump and a better title to my name and that's what we're hoping but if not you know that's the good thing about having the STEM background is your um, skills are so transferable to so many different things that you really don't need to be too harsh on yourself about always getting what you can the job market can be a little bit hairy but as long as you keep your like eyes and ears open there'll be probably a few more opportunities than maybe you would have first noticed. So we could interview Dr Zoe Britton as her postdoctoral next year. Oh, her position. Gosh. How does that sound? <laughs> Scary, but yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so that's, that's the process. That's, I mean, at the moment you have a goal, you are going to achieve your, you know, PhD. Yeah. So that's, so that's the, the current the goal. students at my inter-science um, program at the current time call me seaweed lady and one of them did mention that if I come back next year do they have to call me dr seaweed lady <laughs> which is great they've re- they recognize that this is this is that path that and I think that's fair I think dr seaweed lady I think that's a fair job yeah I'll have to get I'll there. have to get a t-shirt made yeah I, I really yeah. think that that would be <laughs> with, with one of your beautiful indigenous illustrations of seaweed on it I think that would just be perfect Brooke what about yourself so obviously teaching is the goal at the moment? Oh, the main goal is just to finish this degree. <laughs> um, short-term, short-term goals are definitely the key. Honestly, I'm a bit the same. Wherever I end up, I'm pretty happy. I'm, doing, I'm happy doing so many different things. Uh, when I finished my undergrad, I found that I had a huge passion for where science meets history. And it's something that I wish I'd found sooner because I probably would have ended up doing a PhD in something fantastic like paleoanthropology. Uh, <laughs> What a great word, paleoanthropology. <laughs> I met some really fantastic academics at the, at the undergraduate degree university and they were doing some really fantastic things. Like my fun fact that I learned is like even though tree rings have rings that you can see the age, we have something very similar in our teeth and you can actually see like if there's been a big traumatic event, you'll actually see a bit of an, a larger ring or something. So we can look at fossils and things and we can sort wow. of determine age. Like this... Working with them just blew my mind. And if I'd stayed in Brisbane, yeah, I'd definitely be doing a PhD with them. Absolutely. So it's something maybe down the track I'd think about doing, um, even if it's not yet in evolution or something in archaeology. Even I love watching all those sorts of shows on National Geographic and stuff as well. So I don't know where I'm going to end up. Um, short term, finishing the degree, but potentially even working with Deakin or some sort of facility in outreach because this this is what I've been doing for 20 odd years and I'd love to do it as a full-time paid work Um, that's probably the biggest thing is I've done so much volunteer work but it's not necessarily paid and I'd love to jump into that pay stream at some point Mm. but yeah wherever the wind blows 
I like that we both got options. It's just because I say that plans are always good if you're open to them changing. If it's if they're rigid, if you this is exactly what I'm going to do, that's when it can be quite upsetting mm-hmm. if it doesn't go to plan yeah. but having an idea of what you might like to do but knowing that it's okay if something else comes up in the meantime like maybe coming back to that phd mm. later and going because that does sound very cool i didn't know that about teeth i'm going to be honest and i don't think zoe knew no, that about teeth I know, i'm a bit scared but excited <laughs> about knowing that the, the information that you know that you can learn and, and the different research opportunities that are out there that you're not going, no, it's okay, I'm going to be a teacher and that's what I'm going to do for the rest yeah. of my life. It's like, no, actually, there's so many options of what you can do. And look, I don't blame young people in particular for having this idea that you need to know what you want to do because you feel a lot of that pressure in VCE. You know, you have to pick your subjects, yeah. you have to pick your course, you have to pick the right subjects and to you get, get into the course and you get all asked the time. all the time, yep. what do you want to do? And the thing is, you often don't know what you want to do because maybe what you want to do, you don't even know exists. <laughs> You know, and once you find it and you realise you have such a passion for it. So keeping your mind open as well. Like I took a year off between my honours and my PhD. I've um, deferred a semester in my undergrad. I have a lot of students now that I'm helping to teach who, you know, got affected by COVID. So when COVID, you know, everything sort of opened up again, they took a year off between their second and third year to just go and have a good time, travel around. And so... Which I highly advocate. Yeah, yeah. even, you know, the the family question, for some people, it's perfectly fine to uh, finish your studies, delay studying a family. But then there are people who, thanks to the supports they have or their lifestyle, you can have a kid whilst being at school and you'll be supported. You know, we have students who are fresh from high school, students who are 60 years old coming back to study for the first time. And that's one of the awesome things about being at the rural campus is you see so much more of a broad range of people and get to know them and um yeah there's just so many opportunities out there for everyone and the choices they've made to come back you know particularly if you're a mature age student going this is what I want to do I can do this I don't have I can't go I've missed my chance so knowing that you've always got chances whether it's in STEM or whether it's you know whatever your passion is Mm. obviously we're a very passionate STEM bunch but whatever your passion Mm. is and my love for anthropology I didn't know anthropology existed and I needed a elective unit and I couldn't choose I was so overwhelmed because it was the end of my first year and I it was just a lot to take in and the reason I chose it is because the um, code for the unit it was a three-letter acronym and it was actually spelled out a bit of a rude word. It was ASS 101. And so we thought it was very silly and funny. And I took it. Because it was funny. And then I ended up doing an entire degree in it because I loved it. So you never know. Just take yeah. those chances. You never know where it all went. You never know your pathway. Yeah. <laughs> what, a great, what a great random way, though, yeah. to pick something that just sparked Mm -hmm. that moment. I will finish up with my questions there, though, because I've loved what you both have shared today. So thank you very much, Zoe and Brooke, for sharing, for sharing your insights, for sharing your journeys, for being vulnerable, for being open, for sharing your advice for others who are thinking about what they want to do in their future. To our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your busy lives to listen to Zoe and Brooke. Um, I hope, like me, you were inspired and think that can choose what you want to do and be strong in what you want to do for our listeners if don't hesitate to let us know if you have any questions or feedback about any of the topics we discussed today you can email us on respect at deacon.edu.au thank you for listening everyone